Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Matt Kaplan will join us to discuss the science of the magical. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, if you've ever been curious about elixirs of eternal life, fabled gateways to the underworld, or the spells of witches that turn men into beasts or oracles, then you'll be thrilled to read The Science of the Magical, the new book from Mr. Matt Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan is a science correspondent with The Economist and has contributed weekly articles to its science and technology section for decades. He's also written for National Geographic, Nature, and the New York Times, and again, his new book titled Science of the Magical, From the Holy Grail to Love Potions to Superpowers. And Mr. Kaplan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a, a fascinating book, Science of the Magical. I'm curious uh, why you decided to write this book. Well, I've always been fascinated by the boundary that exists between mythology and science. I, I trained as a paleontologist, so I you sort of get immersed in this world of trying to look at bones that you find in the fossil record and tease out what those bones can tell you. If you're going to dig into sediment that's 5, 10, 20, 100 million years old, you can look at the bones and try to develop a picture of what animals were living there and figuring out what the ecosystem was like. I've always been interested in both folklore mythology and science, and I've realized over the years that to a certain extent you can do the same thing with mythology and legends, although you have to be very careful about it. You can look at, say, the story of Odysseus, which dates back to Homer, and we know it started appearing around 800 B.C., and you can ask yourself, did our ancestors just make all of that up, or are there fragments of reality that got preserved in that story a bit like a fossil? And that's what this book is really all about. I look at myths and legends throughout history and ask the question, did this just get imagined, or was there something that led our ancestors to come up with this piece of material and then ultimately ended up preserving it in their stories? Uh, so in looking at these various legends, myths, did you find that there was any common threads that kept reemerging or any nuggets that kept uh, inspiring different types of legends? Yeah. You know, so on one end, you find that a lot of poisons and toxins and chemicals in the natural world, which we understand today, were viewed by our ancestors as magic. Because, for example, if you take, um, let's think of a, of a plant, if you take henbane and you prepare it properly, you can create a sleeping draft out of it. And now, that, if you get it wrong, you'll kill the person. But alternatively, if you crush the henbane and, and massage it into somebody's legs or arms, it'll make them feel numb and feel like they're flying and also give them a little bit of a high. So. We understand the biochemistry of what henbane and the, and the chemicals in that plant are now doing to you, but our ancestors didn't. And so, for example, um, it, oh, for many, many years, people have argued that the berserker warriors of Viking legends, these are the guys who would like strip down 
charge up to the up the coast in France with axes and hack up Frenchmen to pieces when they wouldn't trade with them because the Vikings were pagan and the, the French had converted over to Christianity between 800 and 1000 AD. These guys are listed in the stories as, as being impervious to iron and fire. You could shoot them, you could burn them, and they wouldn't fall. And they were viewed by people as, as, the, as the people who were ensorcelled by the god Odin. And for many, many years, folks have argued, okay, they must have been taking mushrooms. There must have been a specific species of mushrooms that they were, mushroom that they were abusing. And you know, the rich literature is really, really rich with the suggestion that the mushroom in question is the Super Mario Brothers mushroom, that red and white thing that makes you grow really big in Super Mario Brothers. Well, people have argued for a really long time that that particular mushroom would be the thing that the Vikings were taking. But I was just going through all of this with toxicologists at Harvard University this past year and asking, biochemically, if you were to consume this mushroom, what happens to you? Exactly what follows? Well, you get disoriented, you get nauseous, you, you suffer from exhaustion. None of these things sound like the kind of thing that would happen if you were a berserker warrior charging up a beach to hack people to pieces. It wouldn't make you impervious to iron or fire. And so it, you look into recent archaeological literature, and they have started digging up henbane seeds at the sites where Viking sorcerers were buried. That doesn't prove that henbane was used to make the berserker warrior feel numb to pain and feel like they were you know, blessed by their god and could fly up and kill people. But it suggests that that may have been the case. And so you know, that's, that's really the science of the magical, and that's really what it's all about. It's about looking at archaeology. It's about looking at the biochemistry asking questions about myths that have had assumptions behind them for years, and then assessing that and discussing it. And sometimes you really get a solid answer. Sometimes you can say, wow, that's amazing. That really looks like what our ancestors were mistaking for magic. And sometimes you step back and say, I have absolutely no idea what they were doing. It clearly, we, we clearly don't know. Maybe they made it up. Maybe they didn't. And, and sometimes you run into dead ends. So that's part of the process, too. Is it usually uh, biochemical in nature, or are there other spurred these different types of myths? You do get other things too. So, for example, so terms of potions and drugs and compounds, the Egyptians smeared stuff on their faces that they believed blessed them by their god Horus, and in fact granted some immune benefits. Uh, in the Odyssey, we have Circe drugging Odysseus's men into believing that they were animals, and then uh, the god Hermes giving Odysseus an antidote such that he doesn't suffer the same effect. I mean, and you have love potions and, and sleeping potions and all of these different things, and all of those are toxins, but you do have other stuff. So, for example, uh, way back in 2000 B.C., livers were a really big deal. People would go and kill a goat, look at its liver, and try to predict the future with it. That sounds pretty non-scientific when you, you, know, you live in the modern day. Uh, and this activity continued all the way up into Roman times. Folks would go chop open a goat, grab its liver, and ask the liver, well, not ask the liver, they would look at the liver and try to, to predict whether their uncle who'd suffered from a disease was going to die within the month. And that sounds so crazy, but when you look at the origins of it, way back in Mesopotamia, the, it's not so crazy. So here's the deal. Folks were grabbing goats on fields where they were thinking about building farms, or they would grab a sheep grazing in an area where they were thinking about building a settlement. They'd kill the sheep with a goat, 
and they'd look at the liver. And the, we, we have the writings of what people were looking at in a liver. If it was dense, this was a good sign, and the gods were smiling upon you. If it was rough, this was a bad sign, and you shouldn't build. If it was a bright red color, this was good. If there was a blocked portal, then this was bad. I mean, we have all of the notes. And so I asked the classicists who had done all the work on livers, in, in the historical element of livers, hey, have you guys ever thought that maybe you know, you could look at a liver and predict whether the fields are going to suffer from drought and have done for the past 10 years. Similarly, I asked, hey, could you look at a liver and predict whether or not a goat had suffered from periodic episodes of pestilence during the past 10 years? And the classes is uh, one of the folks I spoke to was Derek Collins at the University of Michigan. He laughed at me and said, what do I look like, a veterinary pathologist to you? And so I thought, hmm, that's a good point. No, you're not a veterinary pathologist, but as a science correspondent, I know lots of veterinary pathologists. So I started calling up veterinary pathologists and asking them, could you predict the past by looking at a liver? Could you determine the past events by looking at a liver and therefore determine whether or not there might be future events that are similar? Because if a field suffers from drought periodically and has done for the past 10 years, that's a pretty good measure that you're going to see drought again at some point in the near future. So a veterinary pathologist told me, yeah, you could look at a liver and it would tell you that the animal had suffered from disease periodically in recent years or had suffered from drought or what have you. It's a lot like tree rings. Um, so I thought, oh, I wonder how hard this would be. So I started calling up butchers in the London area and saying, hey, could I look at your livers of the you know, animals that you're chopping up and determine whether or not they came from you know, a very dry area or a very moist area? Most butchers shouted at me and said I was crazy, but one, a fellow named Struan at the Provenance Butchers in Notting Hill of all places, said, yeah, come on down. As I was leaving the office, my boss asked me where I was going and decided to tag along, so there I was with my boss from The Economist chopping up livers and trying to predict the future. And as it turns out, it, you, I mean, you, we didn't have any goats that you know, suffered from disease because those animals don't ever make it to a butcher's shop. But the reality is you can look at livers of, let's say, pigs and very easily predict where they came from. Did they, was this pig prancing around on a grassy pasture in West Yorkshire? Or was this pig growing up in battery farming in the Netherlands? It is so obvious. The signs are so well recorded in the liver. It's like looking at a fossil. You can, you can really determine where this animal came from just by looking at that one organ. And so I think our ancestors were probably on to something with liver readings. Okay, I agree. It's crazy to try to predict whether Uncle Petronius is going to die of the plague in the next 10 years by looking at a goat's liver. But if you were trying to build a farm or a settlement, killing a goat and looking at its liver could tell you a lot about what had been happening in the area in recent years. And so... From that point, it makes a lot of sense that they did it, and there actually is a lot of science behind what was considered this magical activity. So were there many instances like that where there was something that probably did have a basis in, in science, but then just got extended uh, a logical conclusion and then led to these myths? Yeah, sometimes they do really get extended to craziness, uh, and sometimes they don't. I mean, the Viking mythology is, is really cool on that front. Odin, um, so right, until 10 years ago, I could say Thor or Odin, and a lot of people really wouldn't know what I was talking about, but thanks to Marvel Comics, now everybody knows that Odin is Anthony Hopkins. Well, I mean, you get my point. Um, Odin had two ravens 
that sat on his shoulder and flew out into the world of men every day. He also had two wolves. And in the Viking literature, it's really clear that there's this sense of anxiety over losing sight of his ravens. If you don't keep track of the ravens, it's a bad thing. Similarly, if you saw Odin's wolves, this was a good sign. In fact, it says that seeing wolves was a good omen, and in the, in the Viking literature, there's this, this tale called the Elder Edda, which was penned in 1200 AD, and it specifically writes that Gyr uh, and Freak, which are the names of the wolves that belong to Odin, will feed the warfaring followers uh, of the Allfather, who is the other name for Odin. And that's so weird, because ravens and wolves are scavengers. If anything, they compete with us for food, and if you go and kill an elk in Viking days and drag it back to your tent or your cabin and don't bring it in quickly, ravens and wolves are going to get it. So why would these animals be revered? What's the point? Why would they have done that? Well, you start looking at raven and wolf literature, and you realize that actually ravens and wolves have a special relationship. Ravens follow wolves to wolf kills, and they start picking off the food very quickly, and the wolves tolerate this. You can even follow ravens to wolf kills, and in fact, Yellowstone National Park, where they've got a really big wolf reintroduction study uh, going on, because wolves were exterminated from the park in the 1920s and brought back in the 1990s. They're tracking them, to trying to understand how they behave, and the researchers all admitted to me, yes, they have radio telemetry, yes, they have aircraft, but what they really use are ravens. When a wolf is about to make a kill or has just made a kill, the ravens create such a commotion, you can see the wolf kill from miles away. So why does that matter? A key reason why it matters is because we know from hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa that people follow birds to predators all the time. The Hadza tribe who are still functioning as hunter-gatherers, will look at vultures in the sky and race after them and then work as a group with their spears to drive lions off, the, off of fresh kills that they've made. They will then, when the lions have been driven off, grab a piece of wildebeest and run back to camp before the lions can get them. So that activity is called power scavenging. We don't have any hunter-gatherers in northern latitudes today, but you can make the hypothesis that you would use ravens and wolves up there. You could follow ravens to wolf kills just as the rangers in Yellowstone National Park follow uh, ravens to wolf activity and then grab a piece of bison or grab a piece of elk and bring it back to camp. And I think it is from this that we get that concept that the wolves of Odin will provide for you. Because if you were power scavenging, losing sight of the what ravens would have been terrible, and the wolves would have been your providers. In fact, I actually went to test this out in Yellowstone this past year. Uh, I tried for about a week in the middle of winter to chase after ravens to see if they would, in fact, lead me to wolf kills. And, it, well, the first raven took me to a dumpster, which was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, the second set of ravens that I followed ended up taking me out to three wolves, which were circling around an elk. And, in fact, I caught that on camera and put it up on a matter of fact in fiction.com, which is my website. And, uh, I mean, it was an astounding experience to realize and, and that you could really do this. And then we found more kills by following ravens throughout the rest of the week. So, you know, I think there's some real truth there. And that, that's just the kind of mind-boggling stuff that I never could have possibly imagined when I set out to explore this. Do you think that from all these stories that it just highlights the ability of humans or to make these connections, these correlations? I think that there's two sides to it. I think one is exactly what you're saying. When you don't understand what you're seeing in the world, 
you try to explain it as best you can. And when you can't explain it using the phenomena that you already understand, you have to explain it using magic and gods. I mean, that's what our ancestors were really up to. So I think that's a big part of this. But there's another side to it, and that is if you don't have literature yet, if you don't have extensive writing, if most of your activity involves telling tales and passing along information to your descendants via storytelling, which is the case in pre-Viking era for sure, they didn't have writing. They couldn't, they couldn't pass messages to one another. The only way they could transfer information from one generation to the next was through storytelling. And storytelling is a great way of passing along information because stories with beginning, middles, and ends uh, are able to help you to preserve information you've collected. So if you build that the build into the story that ravens and wolves are great things and you should always keep an eye on them, then what you're really doing is not just making sure that you stay fed, but that your children and that your children's children also respect those animals and know that they should be following them for food, which would help protect your genes and support you in the long run. So, I mean, it's an amazingly complex process, but it makes a lot of sense when you look at it from that perspective. So do you think then that uh, this type of myth-making or, or mythology is essentially lost and uh, myths are, are no longer present in, in today's society? Oh, not at all. Not at all. So, you know, what I mentioned on the cover of the book, Superheroes, is one of the topics that I hit. And, you know, part of that is because I think superheroes do such a very good job of showing that mythology is as far from extinct as you can possibly get. So if you go back to when X-Men came into being, we're talking about 1962. You talk about when Spider-Man came into being. You're talking about early 60s. Similarly, the Fantastic Four. Similarly, the Incredible Hulk. Now, what do these guys have in common with one another? The Incredible Hulk becomes the Incredible Hulk because he's exposed to gamma radiation. X-Men are initially called Children of the Atom because of atomic radiation. Spider-Man becomes Spider-Man because he's bit by an irradiated spider. This is because in the early 1960s, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we had an enormous amount of fear about radioactivity, what it could do to you. What, there was this enormous amount of unknown. And so what we did in these topics, as well as many others, you've got lots of movies and other stories that record the panic and fear associated with radiation. You've got fossilization of the current concerns in fiction. And, and it's funny because you look at the current Spider-Man tales, the most recent Spider-Man movie is not that he gets bit by an irradiated spider. He is now bit by a transgenic spider. And I think a lot of that reflects the fact that there's fear associated with transgenics now and a lot less fear associated with irradiation. We should still fear radiation, but it's not as much on the public mind. So in this one scenario, Spider-Man alone shows us that we have actually, we do fossilize the material that is concerning us at a specific time in history, and that the, the comic book itself records that. So I think it's really important to look at the mythology and ask yourself, what, what is it recording? And to a certain extent, uh, that recording is associated with science. Uh, so looking at how things have been retconned, you can get a sense of what the current fears of, of society are in a way. Yeah, you can. You can. I mean, it, it's, it is imperfect. It is not the same as drawing bones out of the earth, but it's the best we've got. And so you can use that in conjunction with history and try to piece together what people were thinking about. And, and to a certain extent, you've got the other way around now today. I mean, I was just talking to a fellow at MIT, 
who was building an arc reactor. So an arc reactor, for those not steeped in comic book lore, is that chest piece that Tony Stark wears in his Iron Man suit that powers him and keeps his heart from stopping from having shrapnel descend into it. So uh, he has not built a reactor that small, but he is shrinking fusion power generators down to a size that are shockingly tiny, like the size of a small house, compared to football stadiums, which is the current size. And we haven't got fusion to work yet, but they're moving in that direction. And I was interviewing him for The Economist, and I said, you're calling it an arc reactor. I'm just curious, to what extent did you decide to pursue this field of study because of Tony Stark? And he said, Tony Stark went to MIT, man, of course. I mean, this is, I, I do what I do because I was inspired by Iron Man. I mean, that's why I'm here. And I love that because you've got this back and forth between fiction and science. They feed off of each other to a certain degree now. And I think that is just so exciting. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious uh, if you have maybe final words uh, regarding myth and science. I think that next time you think about mythology and decide that it is completely divorced from science, that you should think again. Mythology and science, while they are taught as completely disparate subjects, actually have uh, more in common than many people realize. And so I think that that would be the take-home message, and certainly it's the message of the book. And um, I would say go to Amazon.com, buy Science of the Magical. I think that if you even have half as much fun reading it as I had writing it, you're going to have a spellbinding experience because it was just extraordinary. <laughs> uh, well, the new book, again, is uh, Science of the Magical, From the Holy Grail to Love Potions to Superpowers, and the author is Mr. Matt Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.